BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. On this Friday morning, December 3rd, about 8.30 in our nation's capital, where we learned last evening the government is not going to shut down after all. The Senate joined the House in keeping the lights on at least until February, despite the fact that a handful of Senate Republicans threatened to shut things down unless President Biden dropped his vaccination mandate for businesses. In other news, the Supreme Court held oral arguments this week on the explosive subject of abortion, where six justices appeared ready to strike down Roe v. Wade. In his new book, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows reveals that Donald Trump tested positive for COVID two days before his first debate with Joe Biden. But now Meadows says uh, it was all fake news. And for the moment, House Republicans stop attacking Democrats and in the true spirit of cannibalism, start attacking each other. <laughs> so much to talk about, so little time. So let's jump right in with today's panel of political reporters. Jennifer Habercorn covering Congress for the LA Times. Hello, Jen. Hi, Bill. And Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Bill. Welcome back, and we also hope to be joined soon by Scott Wong, who also covers Congress for the Hill. So, Jen, uh, we ended the workday yesterday thinking, oh my God, here we go, the government's going to shut down, there's no way to avoid it this weekend, and yet, by a vote of 69 to 28, the Senate ended up passing a resolution kicking, joining the House and kicking the can down the road until February who blinked, Jen? What happened? <laughs> um, you know, I've gotten a little cynical of these things. We're praising the <laughs> government for uh, keeping yeah. the lights on with 24 hours to spare, if only yeah. for 11 weeks. Um, but in this case, you know, Republicans were demanding a vote at a uh, majority threshold, 50 instead of 60, um, on an amendment to defund the Biden administration's vaccine requirement. And, you know, this was going to be a big deal because if they picked up one Democratic vote, particularly that of Joe Manchin, they would win. Um, but it turned out as the day went on, a couple Republicans were absent. So it was never going to win at a, a 50 vote threshold. So Democrats gave them the amendment. Um, Senator Mike Lee, the Republican from Utah, came to the floor demanding this majority threshold. And when he got it, you know, they had to move forward and accept the win, even though um, this was essentially designed to fail. So uh, no one came out of this smelling like roses and uh, Republicans got their amendment. Of course, it lost, beca particularly because of those absences and uh, the government was funded. Yeah. So, it's Jeff, who wanted this shutdown anyhow, right? I mean, 
Chuck Schumer didn't. Even Mitch McConnell didn't, right? No, and and even the the members who were behind this, uh, notably Mike Lee, Roger Marshall, they even said we don't really want to shut the government down. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it appeared at the at the end of the day, what they really wanted was a messaging bill. They turned this into a messaging bill where they could at least go home to their constituents, save some face. And say, yeah, I hate this vaccine mandate too. I tried to vote against it, but you know those darn Democrats. We got to get rid of them. Um, and the other interesting dynamic at play here was that the the Republican leadership in the Senate wasn't really on board with this. Um, John Cornyn, when we asked him about it, he said, uh, "quote Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy." <laughs> right. Um, and Mike Braun, who actually has a standalone bill on this same exact thing said, I support the underlying policy, but why do we want to shut down the government over this, which they're just going to blame us because they always do. Uh, so there was lukewarm support at best for this, even among the conference. Right. But I uh, think we could also say that it, you got to remember in a Congress with majorities this small, one member or a handful of members, uh, can if they want to exercise it can have a lot of power and can throw up these roadblocks anywhere they want really right well it's interesting that the issue they chose to uh some of the that handful of republicans chose to take their stand on was uh, the vaccine mandate for business for businesses uh something that uh, speaker pelosi in the house said she was never never going to allow congress to do here is the speaker How do they explain to the public that they're shutting down government because they don't want people to get vaccinated? Why don't you go ask them? This is so silly that we have people who are anti-science, anti-vaccination, saying they're going to shut down government over that. And you're asking me, what's our message? Uh, So, Jen, this is really where they wanted to take their stand? Yeah. And, you know, Democrats seemed okay with having that fight. I mean, Chuck Schumer went to the floor back when it looked like this shutdown was going to happen and said, you know, if this happens, it's the Republicans anti-vaccine shutdown. So both sides were clearly kind of sharpening their knives, preparing for this vaccine debate. And both sides seem to feel that it's a winning issue. Of course, you know, Republicans then have to uh, try to navigate being pro-vaccine but anti the requirement and democrats have to defend the somewhat unpopular idea of the the mandate and so yeah it would it would have been tricky for both parties but both parties also you know as as is usually the case in these things everyone thinks that they're right and that the public is going to agree with them um but then you add shutdown politics to it and everyone just looks like they can't you know tie their shoes Right. So, so Jen, you started by expressing a little skepticism about this whole song and dance. The one thing we do know for sure, right, is we're going to see the same old song and dance on February 18. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can say that with 98% certainty. Um, <laughs> of course, of course, there is chatter that, you know, this is going to give um, leadership time to actually do appropriations bills and, um, you know, get out of this loop of just uh, approving the same funding that's been approved in the past. And of course, we have to remember that, you know, Democrats are really motivated here to get out from underneath the prior spending levels, which were set during the Trump mm-hmm. administration. And Republicans have no incentive to do that. Um, so 
Um, yes, like I said, 98% chance that we're just doing the same thing again. We're looking at a bill that funds the government for um, less than three months. Uh, but there is, of course, a small chance that Congress does actually get its act together and uh, sets new spending levels. All right. Bill, Yes. But sorry, I, I just wanted to say there's a chance we could see something like this even before that because right. a, a similar dynamic is happening with the sure. National Defense uh, Authorization. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. With uh, Marco Rubio is trying to to do something similar with the um, with the China sanctions bill. Um, so we could see this sort of um, uh, obstructionism take hold uh, even next week, maybe. Right. Good point. Thanks. On Jeff. another so must pass bill. Uh, let's jump to the uh, to Supreme Court Wednesday, uh, a very dynamic uh, two hours of oral arguments on the Mississippi law, which would ban abortions after 15 weeks. Uh, Jeff, we all have to be very careful about reading too much into oral arguments, but this time uh, the indications are pretty strong, correct? Yes. Uh, the writing was very much on the wall, at least among five of the justices, uh, which way they're, they're, they're going on this. Of course, the backroom politics uh, within the Supreme Court chambers is what we don't know, which is to say, will John Roberts uh, broker some sort of a, of a compromise that doesn't fully throw Roe out the window, or maybe just rules on a, on a lesser issue uh, the fetal viability or, or, or something that, that doesn't completely invalidate the, um, the, the prior precedent. Right. Uh, it was Sonia, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Jen, I felt, who, who touched on uh, the other, there are two, as I see it at any rate, I think most commentators did too, Adam Liptak from the New York Times, that the issue before the Supreme Court was um, Roe v. Wade, the issue of viability. The other issue was the integrity of the court, um, the legitimacy of the court, the reputation of the court. Here in her opening statement is Justice Sonia Sotomayor. The sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The Senate sponsor said... We're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? So, Jen, that is the point of what happens if it looks like the court is nothing but a political weather vane. Absolutely. And I think um, Justice Sotomayor right there is clearly targeting John Roberts, the chief justice, who has the court's integrity in mind. And you could hear it in the points that he was making during the oral argument as well. Um, I mean, if the court were to reverse Roe, it would be the biggest Supreme Court case in decades. It would capture the public's attention. It would be a huge political issue. I mean, I, it's hard to overstate how enormous it would be. And it would fly in the face of everything that we heard in the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, of Amy Coney Barrett. Um, both of them were asked several times whether they would respect the precedent of Roe and um, either explicitly or left the impression that um, Roe was settled law and, and the importance of stare decisis, the legal term for respecting precedent. And um, so, you know, the liberals' best argument um, in the face of a 6-3 court that's heavily favored toward conservatives is 
the court's integrity and trying to figure out a way to preserve that. Right. Uh, so Scott Wong is joins us now from uh, The Hill, covering Congress for The Hill. Hey, Bill. Uh, Scott, hi, Scott. So um, what does this do about what does this do for the reputation of Susan Collins? <laughs> <laughs> who insisted, right, that she trusted Brett Kavanaugh and she believed him and he would never, never vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, that is what he said uh, in his confirmation hearings. And she came out to reporters, if you remember, there's plenty oh, yeah. of video of it and said that she takes Brett Kavanaugh at his word. And so if Kavanaugh and the other justices or the majority of justices go ahead and overturn Roe v. Wade through this Mississippi case, then Susan Collins will have egg on her face. I mean, uh, so, you know, a, a lot of people are also saying, you know, this is, this is, that was, uh, a savvy, uh, this would be a savvy political move for, for Susan Collins. I mean, she's, she's, Obviously, from a moderate state, she uh, she understands the electorate there, and uh, you know I, I expect if they did the SCOTUS did overturn Roe v. Wade, then uh, I expect uh, Susan Collins would uh, would change her tune on that, and uh, you know feign some frustration, I think, with with Kavanaugh and the other justices. But Scott, she also said, uh, Senator Collins that this means we have to uh, basically make it the law of the land, get Congress to act by making Roe v. Wade the law of the land. I mean, seriously, this Congress passed something that, you know, that far reaching? Yeah, well, and Collins can say that, uh, and she can join Democrats in saying that uh, Roe v. Wade needs to be codified because it, in this Congress, and in likely in many future Congresses, it never will be codified just because of the uh, the Republican filibuster in the Senate, sixty votes. Uh, I, I highly doubt there are <laughs> sixty votes there to do that, uh, and so she can get away with saying that she wants it codified. But the reality is, unless there's a, a, a major change or shift in the filibuster, that will never happen. Right. And if uh, I could just jump in here real quick, Collins, please. in fact, came out against the bill um, that Democrats are pushing that would codify Roe. Um, <laughs> of course, Collins says that the bill goes further because it would prohibit all of these abortion bans that states have been enacting. And she says that she's working on a bill that would merely codify Roe. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no reason to think that Democrats are going to back down from their position to do a lesser bill at this point. So, so yes, Collins is saying that she wants to codify a row, but she's not on board with the bill that, um, the Senate is likely to vote on as soon as this month. Yeah. And finally on this issue, uh, Jeff, Jen indicated earlier the possible, uh, political impact, particularly if, uh, the court yeah. goes away, it looks like it's going to go. Uh, and is left up to the states. I want to read you a sentence here from the Washington Post, a couple of sentences, uh, which may put this in context and get your comment, and anyone else who cares to jump in. Uh, quote, in 21 states where abortion bans are on the books, but Roe makes them unenforceable today, a conservative victory in Dobbs, that's a case in front of the court, could criminal criminalize the practice immediately. Three of those states, Michigan, Arizona, and Wisconsin, were decided by single digits in the 2016 and 2020 
presidential elections, and each of them has elections for governor, attorney general, and down-ballot offices next year, which could be fought over whether to change abortion bans passed before most voters were born. Jeff, is this sort of the case of the dog catching the car and then not knowing what to do? A, a little bit. I mean, Republicans might get a little more than they bargained for here because for almost 50 years now, uh, Republicans have sort of gotten a pass on this issue because they can pass these restrictions at the state level, satisfy their base, and they know the restrictions are going to get shot down by the courts. So they don't yeah. really have to answer for them. They can just then turn around and blame the courts. Well, now if they're not struck down and you have women having to go 500 miles to, to get an abortion, now suddenly this becomes a much bigger issue in a lot of these states. Um, as my colleague Charlie Cook likes to say, in midterm elections, the out party tends to have all the enthusiasm because they're looking for revenge from the last election. I, I think as a political matter, that's all out the window if Roe is overturned. Uh, there's there's going to be enthusiasm all over the map with voters. I mean, turnout's already very high, but you're going to see the same kind of turnout, I think, that you saw in 2020. Uh, I also saw that uh, 538 did a really interesting analysis of public opinion on, on abortion this week. Um, and they determined that only about 29% of voters want to see Roe overturned. And only about 15% of voters want to see abortion illegal in all circumstances. So mm -hmm. it, it, it could very well be that, that Republicans find themselves on the wrong side of this issue politically more than they had anticipated. Right. I'll just add to that. I saw C the CBS, the latest CBS poll, 62% of Americans said, just leave Roe the way it is. Just, you know, let just don't touch it. Leave it the way it is including 60% of men and 65% of women. Um, so, Scott, I don't know what you're hearing from Republicans in the House, publicly or privately. Is this the issue they want to run on in 2022? No, definitely not. Um, but I do think in talking to some Democrats, actually, just last night, um, they are saying that this is going to be a, mon quote, monumental mobilizer for, for both parties, similar to what, what Jeff said. Uh, it's it's hard to figure out who who has the edge. I guess you could say Democrats would have the edge because of the polls. But I think also Republicans would have a strong political argument if if Roe v. Wade is overturned or if uh, if these justices uphold the Mississippi law, because Republicans can say, well, look, look what happens when you elect us and give us control of the levers of power. We can install conservative justices. We can have generational impact on on cases like Roe v. Wade, uh, that certainly will mobilize their base and get their voters excited. Uh, and so I think it remains to be seen. And I also think the headwinds are so significant for Democrats, certainly in the House, which where I cover, um, that it's it's hard to see how exactly uh, this case will fit in with, with the larger uh, election picture in 2022. Right. Uh, and before we take a break, um, so President Biden was out at the NIH yesterday uh, announcing the latest steps that the administration wants to take in face of the Omicron variant. Uh, Jen, it looks like President Biden, like President Trump before him, the whole presidency is being defined by how they respond to a pandemic. 
Um, what's the what's the sort of rating or what's the take on the administration's response to Omicron? Well, I think the administration's biggest problem is that they are just dealing with a public that is so fatigued on COVID. Even those yeah. Democrats who support the president um, are just, I mean, everyone's sick of it, right? Yeah. And so I think that's going to be a real challenge in the weeks ahead, It particularly if we're, um, you know, as you mentioned, the uh, uh, requirement that folks have to get a, a COVID test before flying, if there are further restrictions on air travel. Um, and, you know, I don't want to mention the lockdown word, but if there's any hint that that's that we're moving in that direction again, um, it's going to be a challenge. And it's, I, you know, even even the best Build Back Better bill is not going to overpower um, COVID fatigue. Right. Uh, Jeff, it's like every time we think we're getting out of this, then something else comes along, right? I mean, this is the new reality. Yeah. yeah. And I, I forget what the exact quote was, but Dr. Fauci this weekend said something like, we're just going to have to learn to live with this, uh, at least in the in the short term, I think. We've also seen uh, increased travel restrictions, and then we've got masks on public transit through March. Uh I think it's certainly throughout the winter, this is going to be the new reality. I think people's patience will sort of be maintained as long as schools aren't affected again. If schools are affected again, uh, all bets are off. And, and then it becomes a real political problem. Yeah. COVID fatigue, I think, is the word, in fact. Okay. With today's panel, Jennifer Habercorn from the LA Times, Scott Wong from The Hill, Jeff Dufour from the National Journal. Let's take a quick break on the Bill Press pod, and we'll be right back and pick up with some of the other news uh, in Congress about all the infighting in Congress and about the former chief of staff's new book. That's next on the Bill Press pod. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, America's teachers, men and women from grade school, I mean, preschool, all the way up through higher education, uh, members of the AFT under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten. They are on the front lines, particularly in this fight against COVID in the nation's schools, keeping our kids and their parents safe. Uh, tough job. They're, they've risen to the occasion. We salute the members of the AFT. Thank them for doing the Lord's work every day in the classroom and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. 
Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. Today's roundtable. Uh, Jennifer Haberporn joining us from the LA Times, Scott Wong from The Hill, and Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Well, Mark Meadows, former chief of staff, says he doesn't want to talk to the select committee in the House investigating January 6th, but he will talk to anybody who will buy his book. Uh, And one of the things that Mark Meadows says in his book is that President Trump actually tested positive for COVID uh, two days before his first debate with Joe Biden. Immediately, the president, former president, says, that's not true. Mark Meadows is guilty of fake news. And then Mark Meadows, standing up for himself, no, no, not quite, responds this way. Well, the the president's right. It's fake news. So, Jen, uh, real question of a backbone there on the part of Mark Meadows, right? You know, I'm not sure if it was just a reflex um, when you hear something you don't like to say it's fake news. But then when you're the source for it, I don't know how you can, uh, how that manages. Um, But yeah, clearly, uh, I, I mean, he had to have known that the former president would not want this out when he wrote it. So I don't know what the motivation there was. Um, the, well, another it, mystifying moment. Yeah, sell I, more I, books, Jen. He wanted to sell more books. <laughs> I, I think that that may be it. But my question, Jeff, is didn't Mark Meadows, if he knew this, and he did know it, and particularly did the White House doctor, Sean Connolly, not have an obligation, a duty to inform the public if the president of the United States tests positive for COVID and then exposes people around him, including one of our colleagues, Michael Scheer, uh, who may or may not have gotten the, the, the pandemic from Donald Trump, po- possibly. Did, wasn't there an obligation to inform the public? Uh, yeah, the... <laughs> The lack of transparency over Trump's health uh, was was really something. There's still that unannounced uh, visit to Walter Reed before he got COVID, which was never explained. Uh, we think it might have been a colonoscopy. Nobody's quite sure. Um, and the timeline around Trump's positive test was was really something. He tests positive. The next day, he's got. Uh, an event for military fl- families at the White yeah. House, right? During which no one wears a mask, and Trump even jokes about it and tells people, "No, you don't have to wear masks here." Then he goes to the debate, refuses to take a test because he says he's gotten there too late for the test to be accurate. Um, is on the stage with Joe Biden. I mean, it's and as you said, he's on Air Force One, gaggling with reporters, and then suggests after the fact, knowing he got a positive test, suggests after the fact that maybe it was Hope Hicks who gave him the virus when Hope (laughs) Hicks tested positive. 
I mean, it, it, the whole thing is just astounding. It's it's not not surprising at this point, but it's not, nevertheless remains astounding. Well, Scott, now this gets into the purview of the January 6th Select Committee, which you've been covering. Um, the question is, if Mark Meadows refuses to testify but is willing to publish a book, doesn't that kind of undercut his claim of executive privilege? Well, that was that was his argument earlier that they were they were hiding behind executive privilege uh, as as others close to Trump tried to do and and failed to do because they were held in in contempt of Congress and referred to the Justice Department. I think once Mark Meadows saw that, uh, saw Steve Bannon and others being referred to the Justice Department, uh, he changed his mind. And and the latest reporting is that he is now cooperating with the January 6th panel, um, which, you know, basically thwarts a, a contempt of Congress vote uh, on the House floor. But the real question is when he shows up and, and when he does come before uh, and testify before that committee, likely in a, in a closed door session, uh, you know, how cooperative will he be? Um, you know, showing up is one thing we've seen Jeffrey Clark uh, mm-hmm. A former Trump DOJ official show up, but not answer any questions. So, the real question is: um, Meadows and others close to Meadows are are we understand going to part going to participate, going to cooperate? So they say. But what does cooperation really look like? Right. Uh, while we're in the Congress, there, Jen, uh, your territory as well. We saw this week the infighting, particularly among Republican women uh, in Congress. Uh, Lauren Boebert, well, she went after first Elon Omar, of course. Um, in fact, let's listen to, this is Lauren Boebert's in front, of, in front of a group back in her district talking about how she was not afraid to get in the elevator with Congresswoman Elon Omar, who happens to be a Muslim. I was getting into an elevator with one of my staffers. I looked to my left, and there she is, Elon Omar. Oops. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack, we should be fine. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, um, going to take any action here, Jen? No. Um, and I don't, I think we're con- seeing the continuation of a trend in which Republican leadership, uh, I should say Reagan file Republicans, uh, say things against fellow members of Congress. In one case, um, Paul Gosar posted anime of killing, uh, Congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and going after Joe Biden um, and then not doing anything. Uh, and it's, you know, there's no reason to think that this is going to stop. If anything, it's it's escalating. I feel like we're seeing it more and more often and um, more and more intensity. And I think it's going to be a real issue, particularly if Republicans do take the majority next year, um, as many people think that they will. Um, if if we continue to see members going after other members like this, it's um, it's really a troubling trend. So Republicans going after Democrats isn't maybe not that surprising. But then you had this pretty nasty exchange, Scott, between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Nancy Mace from South Carolina, where Nancy Mace even said that Marjorie Taylor Greene was batshit crazy. Um, Again, what's striking to me is that Kevin McCarthy just basically lets us all go on while he's sitting on the sidelines, Scott. What's going on? Well, uh, you know, Democrats and I think many Republicans privately will say McCarthy has lost control of his GOP conference. Uh, And the reason he has 
apparently lost control is because he needs both wings of that conference, the far right, you know, ultra conservative pro Trump wing, as well as many of the more moderate members uh, in the center in order to become Speaker of the House. That's been his, uh, you know, lifelong ambition. He's mm-hmm. been at it for 10 years in leadership. You remember, Bill, uh, back in 2015, we've, we've discussed this many times when the Freedom Caucus led, led at that time, I think, yeah. by Mark Meadows and, and Jim Jordan, right. uh, thwarted McCarthy's efforts to become Speaker after John Boehner. And so he's been uh, sitting back, uh, you know, quietly toiling in, in, a, in the hopes of reclaiming that Speaker's gavel. Uh, in 2022, 2023. And so he needs both of those wings of the party in order to become speaker. He's trying to make peace between them. And, and he knows that if he throws Gosar under the bus and holds him accountable, if he goes after Lauren Boebert, uh, all hell is going to break loose and, and his chances uh, to become speaker become very, very slim at that point. Um, because he, he'll need a lot of those people uh, in order to win 218 votes on the floor. Okay, so before we wrap up, uh, uh, Jeff, uh, give us a picture, a uh, look at the national political scene. Uh, we saw uh, this week Stacey Abrams jump back mm-hmm. in, running for governor in Georgia. Last week, Beto O'Rourke running for governor in Texas. Uh, new life among the Democratic Party or just running a couple of former losers? What's going on? Well, it, it is do or die uh, for, for them because you, you lose one big race like that and you can shrug it off, lose two big races like that and you are, and then you are a political loser. Uh, but I've really found ever since Glenn Youngkin's win in Virginia, I've found the dynamic in governor's races really, really interesting. Um, Youngkin was able to keep the, the Virginia race mostly local. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I have to wonder, though, if Youngkin were running statewide for Senate, let's say, instead of governor, how much does that change the dynamic? I think voters now are a little bit more savvy. They know that a vote for a Republican for Senate is a vote for Mitch McConnell, effectively. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for Chuck Schumer. Um, I see the same thing maybe with Larry Hogan in Maryland. Should he try to run? Does he get the same traction as a Senate candidate? And then flip it around to Democrats. Um, is there a path for Stacey Abrams or Beto O'Rourke in a governor's race if they keep things as local as possible? Um, I'm skeptical because that number one, they're already national figures Mm -hmm. uh, and they're already very well defined. And secondly, I'm skeptical because of the national mood and the national political fundamentals. I think, uh, Biden's approvals have to tick up a little bit. Uh, Democrats overall, their approvals have to tick up a little bit and give them a little bit of an opening to yeah. to, to make a move. But you know, it's, it's interesting how many topics that we touched on this morning are going to carry over and have an impact on the 2022 midterm elections. It's really it's really shaping up almost uh, every day, uh, and a lot to cover. And you guys have done a great job doing so so far. Thank you so much, Jen, uh, Jen Habercorn, Scott Wong, and Jeff Dufer. Uh, we won't let you go, though, without uh, sharing with us what your favorite story of the week was. The one thing that, uh, you know, you saw that made you stop for a couple of seconds and think a little bit more about it. Jennifer, let's start with you. 
so my story comes from one of my colleagues at the Los Angeles Times, Sammy Roth. It's part of a series that we're doing on um, looking back at 2021. Um, uh, as you can imagine, some of it is pretty dire. Some of it is <laughs> Um, But in particular, this is on climate. Uh, the headline is the American West went through climate hell in 2021, but there's still hope um, as part of a really good series. Uh, in terms of 2021 and climate change, you said, or that's right. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the West, right. With, uh, all the flooding and, and wildfires and, and everything else. Um, good piece. And thanks Jen so much for joining us today. Um, Jeff Dufer, what caught your attention? I am not Bill a big college football guy. <laughs> Number one, because I grew up in the Northeast where we are a little bit more interested in college basketball than college football. And number two, because college football is a corrupt, monopolistic cartel, which is why it warms my heart so much to see none other than the University of Cincinnati needing one more win this weekend to break into the college football playoff. Um, this would be, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the first the, the first team to make the playoff not from one of the big five power conferences. Boy, I don't follow it at all, but I was just going to say, I've never heard of University of Cincinnati in the top ranks, right? Exactly. Or the, they are currently yeah. ranked third uh, ahead of a lot of the big boys, and they should be able to make the playoff which means, of course, that this is not going to have a happy ending. What's going to happen is next year is the cartel is going to find another <laughs> way to squeeze out these schools from any from any other conferences as they uh, as they put a further hold on their monopoly. Uh, well, think of it this way, Jeff. We're talking about uh, impacts on 2022. You know, Cincinnati wins. Just think what that will do for Tim Ryan's Senate race in Ohio, right? You know? There you go. There's a there's a, there's a populist <laughs> message there. <laughs> and he'll take advantage of it for sure. Uh, Scott Wong, help us out with your favorite story. All right. I'll, I'll give it a shot here. Um, I got some great behind the scenes details for you, Bill. Good. Dean, Dean Phillips, uh, I chatted with him yesterday. Uh, at the Capitol. Uh, he was one of a handful of Minnesota Democrats who flew back on Air Force One with President Biden uh, after his visit to the Minneapolis area, flew back yeah. to D.C., 90 minutes uh, in, in the cabin with him in a little conference room. Whoa. He said that uh, Biden Biden entered the room. He didn't even sit down in one of the chairs. He got down on 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 his knee and uh, got at the level of all the lawmakers that were sitting there, and, and uh, they talked about a lot of things: policy, build back better. He called Biden called family members of the lawmakers in the room. He recorded videos for somebody who was battling an illness. And in Dean Phillips' words, Biden displayed his superpower, which is his empathy and compassion. Again, in Phillips' words, which was devoid in the last president. And so, you know, Philip's takeaway from from that 90 minute meeting, he said it was the longest time he's ever been with the president and in that intimate setting. And he said he'd like to see Biden get out into the country more, use his bully pulpit, but also to to show off that strength of his, which is connecting with people, with everyday Americans in that very human way that Philip said he saw up close uh, earlier this week. And so he's 
Phillips is, is putting that pressure on the administration. A number of other Democrats on Capitol Hill want to see Biden get out into the country more, do these events, you know, day after day uh, and, 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 you know, display some of his strengths. They think that will be a real winner for Democrats in 2022. That is a very interesting story. And boy, I could not agree more. I've told several friends, uh, we don't see the Joe Biden that I knew in the Senate or even as vice president, um, that we don't see that same Joe Biden now that he's in the White House. He's so sort of locked down by his handlers, I think. We don't see the human side of, of Biden. Um, and um, so I think Phillips is is right. And I hope he's successful in convincing Ron Klain and others to uh, let Joe be Joe. There's a risk in letting Joe be Joe, but at the same time, it's helpful for people to see his personality. Now, my favorite story of the week, well, you know, it's just a story. I don't think that got as much attention as it deserved because it says a lot about the new power of workers in this country. And I'm talking about a decision by the National Labor Relations Board this week. You may remember back in April, there was a big election, got a lot of attention uh, by workers at the Amazon plant in Bessemer, Alabama, the union, Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, wanted to organize, form a union for the workers at that Amazon warehouse down in Bessemer, Alabama. Even President Biden supported the workers. But when the election was held, it lost. I mean, the union lost like big time bad. Well, they appealed to the National Labor Relations Board and said that Amazon unfairly influenced the outcome of that election, put too much pressure on the workers to vote against it, and surprise, surprise, the National Labor Relations Board voted this week, uh, the regional board voted this week to agree with the union and allow a new election. Haven't given the date yet, but they're going to redo the election, a total remake, redo of that election, which is stunning. First time I ever remember that happening. And I think it speaks to two things. One, that as one labor union president told me this week, the Biden administration is the most pro-union presidency ever, better than Bill Clinton and even Barack Obama. And two, it speaks to, again, the new power of workers in this post-pandemic economy. Uh, they're the ones who are calling the shots, and they had a big win down in Alabama. And maybe uh, next time, uh, the workers will make the uh, right decision under the right terms and form a union. After all, Amazon is worth $1.9 trillion. They can afford to pay their workers a livable wage. Ah, and that's it for today's Roundtable, today's podcast. Thank you so much to our great panelists, Jennifer Habercorn from the LA Times, Scott Wong from The Hill, and Jeff Dufour from the National Journal. And thanks to all of you, as always, for listening. Remember, if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. Just go to wherever you listen to your podcast, pull up the Bill Press Pod and subscribe and tell your friends to do the same or else they're missing out with a great podcast twice a week. Meanwhile, so take care of yourselves over the weekend. Wear that mask, practice your social distancing. We're not out of the woods yet, but we'll be looking for you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.